Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. So, how's that for a gear change in church? <laughs> <laughs> the love of God, special offerings, mission to the nations. And I hear that there is sexual immorality among you, church. Whoa, 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 we're like, just uh, get all the cogs of our brain into gear. What's going on right now? Um, one of the things that uh, we do as a church is that we like to take books of the Bible and just go straight through them, kind of beginning to end, so that we do actually get to moments like this and we deal with the whole Bible, because as Christians we believe that this book is breathed out by God, and that everything that is written in this book is actually for our personal flourishing. And so, if it were down to me, honestly, I would choose all the nice kind of rah-rah, vision, God loves you text. And I wouldn't get to passages like 1 Corinthians 5. They wouldn't be my personal choice. But when we take the Bible, we want to take all of it, believing that God, sometimes in the most challenging moments, actually He has things to teach us and places where we can grow personally. And so we come in a moment like this to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where we get to sexual immorality. In fact, the next couple of chapters, and I sent an email out this last week just to kind of give you a heads up for some parents with younger kids who might want to just choose which Sundays you want to bring your kids in and out of the Sunday services for. We're going to be looking at some sensitive, personal questions and realities about our own, our own lives. And you might have a whole bunch of reactions to this. Some of you might be like curious. It's like, this could get interesting. Like, what's he going to say? Let's bring the popcorn and like, the pastor's going to get in trouble. This could be interesting. Uh, some of you immediately, even just to read a verse like that, you might have emotions of like guilt and shame. Suddenly you think like, is everyone, is everyone looking at me? Is everyone like are people judging me? Is this about me? And suddenly you might be like, I really, if there was an eject button right now, you'd be like, where is it? Can I just rewind and stay in bed this Sunday morning? Because I don't want to be here. Sometimes it's just like, because we're all honest, we are all sexually broken and sexually sinful in all sorts of different ways. And so suddenly we think, how is this going to impact on me? Or some of us just might be anxious because. There is, there is a feeling, I think, that goes around today that you know, the world it has this vision of sexuality. And the vision of the world when it comes to sexuality is it's this kind of picture of passionate, free, no boundaries, do what you like, be fulfilled. If there's something in your heart, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, you just go for it. Like, and it feels, the, the world's vision of sexuality feels liberating and free and happy and fulfilled. And then in contrast, it feels like the church is like restrictive, niggardly, like just like trying to pet different things out of behavior, like judging, like small-minded, thinking like, no, and it feels like crushing and slightly emotionally claustrophobic. 
And so sometimes we live with these two presentations of like, do you want the world's way? It's like, it's happy, free, fulfilling, do what you like. Or the church's way, which is restrictive, you know, bound you up, etc. And obviously most of us, if that were the case, we're like, well, I, like, that way seems better. Like, the church's way seems way out of touch from this kind of modern society that we live in. The reality is that both the Bible and the world have the same vision for life, that we want to be happy and fulfilled. Like the world does that out there. Also the Bible, Jesus says, I came to bring life and life in abundance. He didn't say, I've come to restrict your life and make it miserable, and if you're more miserable, yeah, then you'll show your sincerity and we'll take you into heaven. No, he said, I've come to give you an abundant life. But how we live that is actually radically different. How we experience fullness and abundance is actually radically different to the church than it is from the world. And I think a, a lot of what we feel emotionally is not necessarily true. Because we're in a, we're in a moment, and I think we've always probably been as human beings, we, we make our decisions first and foremost with our, with our emotions and with what, our, what actually feels right in our gut. We like to think we're rational people. But when you look at like public discourse and social media and the internet like today, there is so much stuff that gets said that is, that is logically incompatible. You probably come across some of it. It's like those two things don't make sense together. But emotionally, we're quite happy with living with that because it just feels like it, it should be okay for that to be the case. And I think a lot of the time we are shaped by the kind of water that we're swimming in as a culture, whether we know it or not. And so, just to be, to be clear, before we get into this, you can tell I'm doing like a slightly long introduction before we get into the passage. There are some like cultural narratives that we live with today that actually shape our emotions and make coming to a passage like this feel like a little bit tricky. And what, what are some of like the undercurrents that we live with? Firstly, like personal freedom is of the utmost importance, right? Like what I do with my private life is really no one else's business. Not church, not society, not laws. I should be free to do anything that I desire in my personal life if it doesn't hurt anybody. Joe Biden is running for the President of the United States. I'm sure you know that. Anyway, he's got his first video out, right? And I know we're not the US, but we do swim in the same Western cultural waters. This is the first thing he says. And I'm not bashing Joe Biden, but he says this. Freedom, personal freedom, is fundamental to who we are as Americans. We might say Westerners as well. There is nothing more important, nothing more sacred, he says. That's been the work of my first term. Which is why you can understand why people are like, you know, get away from my guns, they're mine, you can't touch my guns. But it also means that when it comes to our sexuality, like, get away from what my personal choices, my family life, what I'm doing in my life. Because personal freedom is so, like, up here. And secondly, like, personal authenticity, like me expressing myself. Like if I feel something in here, if I've got something in here, like it's my right to be an authentic person to express it. So if there are impulses that I have or emotions or feelings or leanings or temptations or whatever, like we feel like to be an authentic whole person, we must express that. That's actually quite a new idea. 
like a Western modern idea that if I feel something, I must express it to be whole. For most of human history, we've lived with other did actually, it's commendable to suppress some emotions because not all things are helpful that bubble up with inside of us. But today, personal authenticity seems crucial. And thirdly, we live in these cultural waters where, like, I think probably our favourite Bible verse outside of the church is not John 3.16 now, it's probably Matthew 7 where Jesus says, judge not, right? Like, don't judge me. Like, talk to the hand. Don't, you can't judge me. Like, it's even in the Bible. So, like, back off. This is my life. I'm doing my own thing. Even in church. We're like, don't talk to me about my stuff. Or I'll talk to you about your stuff. Like, just back away. Jesus said it. And so we love this idea. So when you put all this together and you apply it to sexuality, well, we want to be free in our own personal life. The church has nothing to do with that. This is me. I want to be authentic, so if I feel this, if it feels right, then I should be able to be in this relationship or to go there or this behavior or whatever. And no one should be able to say anything to me. Which all of that, you realize, if these things are true, which they are in the culture, when someone stands up and starts talking about sexual ethics, like, our emotions go up. Anyone with me? I mean, if I was sitting where you are, I would be like, what's this guy going to say? So, I hope you'd be the same. You're like, well, but what we want to do is listen to the Bible, okay? So what my goal is, is just to walk through this Bible passage. And it really just introduces us into some subject that we're going to get into over the next couple of months. And it, in a sense, teaches us how to deal with one aspect of sin in a church. I, I think it's going to be helpful because, I mean, in this passage, Paul, Paul touches on things that cross over our cultural norms. Paul puts boundaries around our sexuality. He does actually make a judgment. He discerns right and wrong. He makes a, like a private thing a public thing. He actually talks to the, to the corporate. He talks about Satan and evil, things that we don't want to talk about today because it's just us, me, our bodies, and what we want to do. But Paul says, no, there are realities going on beyond us. All of these things can come into conflict. And what I want us to do is just kind of breathe, like allow our emotions to settle for a second, and just listen to what God might do amongst us. And it might be for us as a church. At the end of the service, we're going to break bread together. And I want to say particularly, if you're feeling, I don't know, if you are feeling any sense of guilt or shame, I just want to... Speak the grace and the forgiveness of God over you before we start. So that, because some of you might not even be able to listen to anything I'm saying because you just feel like I've blown it. Like, whatever, I've just done, I've done this, I've done that. I can't, this is not for me. And you can emotionally shut down. We all live in the favour of the forgiveness of our Saviour Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. And so we all come broken and sinful to Him today. Amen. So if you feel any of that, I just receive the grace of God and maybe there might be some time for ministry to pray. Our goal as a church that everyone flourishes emotionally, relationally, sexually, in every which way we may flourish in the way that God intended. And guilt gets in the way of that. So, all of that here we have this passage, and I want to just say three things. I'd say just three things, like it's going to be about a four-minute sermon, but uh, 
I want to just lay out this vision that Paul has for church life, just address this problem that is in Corinth, and then four ways in which Paul talks about dealing with this problem that was in the church at the time. So firstly, the vision that Paul has for church life. It's interesting, because in the Bible, like, there are so many different metaphors for church. There's the, like, we're the family of God, we're the bride of Christ, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, we're a, we're a vine, and Christ is the, Christ is the bride, we're the branches. In, in this passage, Paul imagines the church as a lump of dough. Inspiring, huh? Look what he says in verse 7. He says this, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. And we put that on our vision statement, right? Trinity Church, London, a new lump for a city. You know, that's, this, is, this is the vision. There is this lump of dough, and Paul has said, you are to be a new lump. What on earth is going on with this leaven and unleavened and new lump stuff? In Fulham, there is this new sourdough bakery that has just opened. I say just opened in like lockdown. And uh, I was persuaded for quite some time that this was a front for money laundering. Because I was looking at this place and I was like, they seem to sell about 10 to 20 loaves of bread a day. Like, how can they afford to starve the rent? And like for a year, like it was just like, how are they selling like 10 loaves of bread? So I clocked them and I was like, these guys, they're money laundering. Well, sure enough, it is eating sourdough bread is a real thing. And now people are queuing up outside the space for their coffee and sourdough bread in the morning. But sourdough, if you're a baker, if you know anything about this stuff, it works with this idea that you have this starter, starter lump that has been leavened. And this leavened bread gets added to a batch of dough and this small starter lump gets added to the big lump and it leavens the whole thing. I don't know how quickly, over a day or so. And this small, it leavens the whole thing so that it rises in carbon dioxide, just makes the whole thing like what they sell in this bakery. And the whole, and, but before they bake this bread, they take off a small lump and put it to one side for the next batch. And so there is always this leavened dough and so theoretically, you can be eating like a year-old piece of dough, right? I looked it up. There is a bakery in San Francisco that claimed that their dough started in 1849. Like, I don't know whether that's a good idea or not, whether like that's healthy or not, but like that's a thing. So you can have dough that basically continues, and leavened dough that continues and continues and continues. The Jewish people did this in the same way. That there is this dough, and throughout the year they would take this lump off and keep it to one side, and when the next batch was being baked, they would level it, they would take the whole, it would permeate through the whole loaf. But God said when He was taking God's people out of slavery from Egypt, He said there was going to be a moment where they were to clear all of the leavened dough out of the house and bake all of the leaven. So you want to keep any to one side, and that a fresh lump was to be made like fresh dough that was to be cut off from the previous continual uh, leavened dough that had been made. And this was to be set apart, to be celebrated when they were to be freed from the Egyptians. And God instituted in Exodus 12 that once a year to, to remember the salvation that God brought to them, 
that they were to clear out all of the leaven dough and to set apart a brand new lump and that this lump might, might be eaten to remember that they were set apart and called by God to be holy. And the leaven symbolized sin. And so when they were to unleaven the bread and they were to eat unleavened bread that wasn't rising, it was to signify the fact that they were a sinless people now called to be holy, set apart for a different reason. It's a bit like the, the, the world has all this dough out there and we're not as God's people just to take a lump of the leavened dough and just be of the same substance. We are to be discontinuous with the leavened dough and we are to be unleavened bread. And so he says that we are to be without, we're to be, um, verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he is calling us out to be this new kind of dough that has no sin or no malice or no evil permeating through it, that we might be as a body holy and set apart. This is a vision not just for our own personal well-being, but for the well-being of a community that we might be something tasty in the middle of a city that is full of leaven. We are together to live a life that displays the light of God. We are to be this kingdom of sincerity, this kingdom of truth, this kingdom of Christ that is radically different in the core ways that we do life, even down to what we do in our private lives, so that we might shine forth the grace of God. Amen? This is the vision. And it's within this vision of church life that Paul has a, a problem. Which is interesting at the very front end, because we are so often concerned with me and myself and my own life, aren't we? But what happens when we become Christians, we give our lives to Christ and we say yes to his forgiveness and then you look around like a couple of minutes later and you realise that there's this like family around me and I'm called to be part of a people. We don't do life solo, which is why Paul is so concerned with church life because we are integrated with other people in the dynamic that we often can't put our finger on but what you do affects us and what we do affects you. What I do affects us and what we do affects me. And so Paul, within this vision of a church that is holy and pure and set apart from the world, he raises this one problem. Well, there's actually quite a few problems, but in this chapter, thankfully, we've only got one problem to deal with. And he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. So it's interesting to say, like, guys, this scene that's going on in the church, like not only does the church raise its eyebrows, but those outside of the church who have no concern for God's ways, even they're raising their eyebrows at this one. You really, really do need to deal with this. And just like it's interesting that when you look at the church, like there are boundaries around our sexuality that the Bible gives us. But it's not just the church that does that. It is also the world that does that. The world has boundaries around our sexuality. Sure, the boundaries are different. And the reasons why we have boundaries are different from the church and the world. But it's important to acknowledge that the church and the world do actually have boundaries. Because otherwise it can feel like, well, really, should we? Everyone is just 
let's have a discussion about where the boundaries are and how we should actually steward our sexuality. And so Paul puts his finger on this one thing. For a man has his father's wife, his stepmom probably, whether his stepmom had passed away or she was still alive. It's basically saying that guys in the church and outside the church, this is just like, it's a no-go. I mean, it's a pretty good takeaway from church, right? There's one thing to learn, like, just don't do that. Like, it's not a good thing to do. We all agree on that. What Paul is concerned with is how we deal with something like this. And let me just say something, because it came, as I was preparing, I think, wow, what about me? Because if we are all sinful, every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. And if there's all sexual brokenness in all of our lives, there's all sexual sin in all of our lives, like, what, what are we dealing with here? Should all of us just slowly, quietly back out of church and never return again? Because this is a tricky one. What Paul is talking about here with this case is, I think, three characteristics. This is public, so it's over, everybody knows about this. It seems to be celebrated. So this person is not only like involved in this relationship, he's actually saying this is a good thing, like this is something to be tolerated. And thirdly, it's not like there's no contrition, there's no repentance here. Which immediately puts it in a different context if it's something that is not publicly aware of and it is something that someone is repentant of and that they don't celebrate. Do you get the difference? So if there's something in your life, some, you know there's some sexual immorality in your life and you know yet you feel repentant and you don't want it to be like that and you know that you mourn over that, it's a category different thing. Do you hear me? I'm trying to be very clear. What we're talking about here is someone who is saying, I'm involved in this kind of relationship, I'm not repentant, in fact I think it's a good thing and should be tolerated in the church. Campaigning that it should be so. So I hope that just puts a few of us at ease, okay? A few like doing lots of caveats today, you can tell, like, walking on very thin ice. Um, how does Paul tell this church to respond in a case like this? Four things. The first thing is this. Firstly, it seems there is a right place for judgment in the church. Because he says in verse for though I am absent in body, he can't be there. He says, I am present in spirit. And that's not some kind of magical you know, thing that he is doing. He's basically saying, like, I am with you. As my judgment, my letter, my point of view is with you. You know what I, what I think about this, he's saying. He says, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Which is basically saying, I've already discerned that this is not a good thing. There is a boundary line, there are activities that are godly, and there are activities that are ungodly. I have pronounced my judgment, this is ungodly behaviour. There is a right place for us to draw boundary lines, and to create a judgment call, and say this is ungodly and sinful, and someone needs to repent of that behaviour. 
There are, there are normally two different mistakes we make in church. And the first is that we don't, we don't want to make any kind of judgment calls on anyone else's behavior or anything like that. I mean, it's particularly kind of a Western thing, like people, you can see stuff's going on, but you don't want to raise it with them, because what if they, you know, you feel guilty enough about your own stuff, so, you know, who am I to talk about their stuff? What if they, you know, start talking about my stuff? So, if we all just keep our own stuff to ourselves, then everyone can just carry on happy and no awkward conversations. And that's kind of like an English way of dealing with things. We just don't want the drama, so let's just, it's fine, we tolerate it. That's one mistake that we can make in church. The other mistake that some people make is that some people are always just sniffing out sin. You ever met any of these people? <laughs> yeah, they're always calling sin out. They're always like aggravating the community group. They're always saying this. They're always like, this is wrong. Even if they don't say it, they're always in their minds calling people out for attitudes. Even if there is no sin, they're still like sniffing around, hoping they'll find something because they're calling in life to... Point, thing, point you know, out the sin of the church and like that's another mistake that's what Jesus says probably by don't judge, that is don't have a haughty attitude where you think you are better than everyone else just looking down and pointing fingers because if you turn around you might look and actually there's a big plank sticking out of your own eye you're trying to take the speck out of their eye and you're knocking everyone out with this two by four that's like killing the church off that's the other, this, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a place for judgment in the church saying that something is godly and something is ungodly. That's actually a correct thing. If we are to be an unleavened lump, if we are to be holy, there is going to be moments of discerning in conversations where we help each other out with our own lives. Sometimes someone else Shedding light onto our own life is a really helpful thing. Anyone ever had that experience? I know some of the moments where I have grown the most as a Christian, whereas an older woman or an older man has spoken to me and said, I have seen this in your life, either positive or negative. And actually things that I think I have been there in the background, like subconscious things, suddenly they come into the fore in my conscious and suddenly it's real because another person is talking about this and suddenly there is a thing to deal with. Anyone ever experienced that? Someone older wiser talks about wow, there are moments of transformative growth in my life. Some of you have experienced that. Sometimes we need to have those conversations graciously, with humility, knowing we've all fallen short of the glory of God to help one another. So there is a right place for judgment. The second thing is this, we as the church are called to judge sin in the church and not in the world. Some Christians love to just criticise the world, judging the world, always just mouthing off about the world and all oh, this and that and policies here and this person there and oh it's terrible this and but Paul says that as Christians, we don't judge the world, we judge the church. So look at here in verse 12 with me. He makes it very, very explicit. In other places, Peter talks about this as well. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's who's not part of the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those 
who are outside. So our concern as Christians is not to continually be criticising those who are outside the church. Because if someone is not saying that Jesus is my Lord, then their very fabric of being, the very fundamentals of their life, are completely different from us who say that Jesus Christ is my Lord. And of course their behaviour is going to be different to those who are in the church because they're not saying yes to Jesus. So it's absolutely fine for them to carry on sinning. That's up to God. It's not us to be like picking the world's sin apart. It's actually easier to do that as the church, isn't it? Because it keeps all eyes off us. You think, actually, how are we doing as a church? How am I doing personally? So our role is to keep our eyes on the church, that we might take the leaven out of the church, so that we might be something so transformative, so tasty, so tasting of the kingdom, that others might be curious as to, even with your sexual ethics, you seem to be happy and flourishing and doing well in life. What is it about you that makes you different? And at which point we give an answer, and his name is Jesus, Amen. amen? So we are to make judgments sometimes, but judgment over sin is to be for that in the church. And that's not to say there are moments for Christians we need to campaign, you will vote, you will get involved for some of your politics, etc. Things that we think are helpful for society. But we don't do that out of annoyance because people aren't behaving the way that the Bible says so. They don't claim to be Christians, so it's okay. They're with God. That's not our job. Amen? So that's the second thing. The third thing is this. Sometimes, this is what Paul is saying, people need to be put out of the church. This is what he says in verse 4 and 5. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, that is when you come together as church, and my spirit is present, what he's saying is, when you know my judgment, like as an overseer of the church, when you know what I think on these things, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This can feel tricky. Jesus speaks in another moment in Matthew 18 of a disciplinary process. Where he says if someone in a similar position, where it's public, where they are celebrating it, they are trying to make the church tolerate this behaviour, and they're unrepentant. If this kind of situation arises, Jesus says there is a process to go through, very similar. He says, if, if you talk one-to-one -one with that person, if they're still not listening, you go two, and then you take it to the whole church. Which for us is why we feel membership is important, like a, a distinct body. Because in a moment like this, we could have all sorts of people, we don't want to, we're not into shaming people, but we're into discerning as the church together. And there may be moments where we need to gather as the body of Christ to make a judgment like this. And Jesus says there are moments where someone may be put out of the fellowship of the church for their own good. Some of us, we know like this religious practice of shunning. And if you've come from Muslim backgrounds or if you've come from any awareness of like, cult backgrounds, we even know people who have been with us who have been shunned and have found their way to us. Shunning is where a religious community or a cult puts someone outside of the community and they then have zero to do with them. No phone calls, no texts. In fact, it's forbidden to have anything, any communication to do with them. What Paul is talking about is not shunning. 
He is not saying, put them out and have nothing to do with them. If, they walk, if you walk past them in the street, you literally ignore them. He's not saying that. Two things. Firstly, what Paul is talking about is not punishment, it is for restoration. Shunning is about punishment. You haven't towed the line with us, you're out, we punish you. But what does Paul say here? He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Which does sound a bit punishment-y, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit like a pyro, like walk the plank, like you're, you're off, mate, like you're all good, you screwed this up, like whatever. Like, but it does sound a bit like that. But it's not punishment. He says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul is not saying your destruction, he's not saying so this person might just die outside of the safety of the house of God. When Paul talks about flesh, he's talking about sinful nature. He's saying may they be put out of the fellowship of the church so that something in their sinful nature might be destroyed. There might be an awareness of sin and repentance. Like the prodigal son who spent all the father's money and in that moment, in a, in a dark moment, suddenly their eyes were opened and they remembered the goodness of their father and their eyes were opened to their sin and they repented and turned and came back to God. This is not punishment. This is so that sinful behaviour and sinful flesh might be destroyed and they might find the salvation of the Lord. And secondly, this is not about the cutting off of relationship. This is actually about the winning over. Because Jesus in Matthew 18, when he talks about church discipline, what he actually says in the end, treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. So the question is, how should the church treat Gentiles or those outside of the church how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He sat with them, he ate with them, he drank with them. So much so that people called him greedy, a drunkard, because he seemed to spend so much time with them, talking to them, winning them over, talking about the kingdom, this new reality that he was coming to bring. So for anyone who faces this kind of situation when they are placed outside of the fellowship of the church, it is so that the church might rush after them and treat them as one who does not know Jesus, but that they might come to find the forgiveness and the, the life of God. Amen? Very different. So you must not hear shunning in church discipline. We're the body of Christ. It's a radically different thing. But there are occasions, and it hasn't happened very often in my 20 or so years of church leadership, but there are moments when that needs to happen for their own good and for the good of the church. Fourthly, and this is almost like a counter, we are to live freely in the world. It seems like Paul had said that you are not to like, be a part of anyone who is involved with sexual immorality and they had taken this like so extreme that basically they had broken off any friendship with anyone who wasn't part of their church in Corinth. And so Paul brings this corrective where he says, I wrote to you in my letter, the letter before the one that we had, not to associate with sexual immoral people. Sure, like fine. But I wasn't at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. 
So he's bringing this curse like, guys, you've got this slightly wrong. Like, I wasn't actually meaning that you don't talk or meet or go to work with these people. Like, be involved. Be free in the world. Know that God is the one who judges all of our hearts. So it's not our place to judge. It's our place to love. So we go and we be free in our workplaces, with our families. We engage with all of those who are sinful. He says, sexually immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters. Be free. So we live with this wonderful like, contradiction as a church, where we are very strict with ourselves. We don't tolerate any level, any sin in our own heart or the community. We want to live holy and pure, this love set apart for God. And at the same time, we are absolutely free and abandoned with our relationships and friendship with those outside of the church. And in this way, in this way if, we, if we hold all of these things together, we can walk with Jesus and be a distinct community. Mm-hmm.